Later this week, if you've been into hockey, the Stanley Cup is going to get awarded. And this is probably the one championship to which most Canadians pay attention, even those who don't normally care about hockey or sports, because uh, as Canadians, it's sort of a rallying point, because hockey is Canada's game, isn't it? Anyways, the trophy is going to be awarded Uh, I don't know what the schedule is, but sometime this week, I think there's only a possible two games left. It's going to go either to the Chicago Blackhawks or the Tampa Bay Lightning. And as always, there's going to be a lot of television coverage on that celebration. And some of that, I always think we could do without, especially the stuff that goes on in the dressing room. We really don't need to see all that stuff. But the part that I've enjoyed the last few years is that they linger a lot longer on the ice than they used to. Uh, There's the tradition, of course, of the winning team skating around the ice with the cup, pass it on to each player, and now it goes down to to, uh, coaches and equipment managers and all sorts of people. But the part that I like is that that the family celebrations now happen on the ice as well, where especially those players that are are married, their their wives join them, and sometimes their children as well. It's sort of a, a, a sweet kind of setting when the reporters ask the players to, to introduce their wives and their children. And it sort of brings a, a little bit more of a family-like feel to the celebrations. And for the last number of years, I've noticed that one of the questions that re- the reporters will go around and ask each player during those celebrations is this. They usually say something like, is there anyone particular that you can think of that helped you get to this moment? That's an interesting question, isn't it? For a hockey player, especially for someone who makes it to the professional level, only a very small percentage of all the players that that would play minor hockey, winning the Stanley Cup is really the pinnacle of that sport. It's the thing they all work towards. That's the highest thing that can be achieved. You can't get any better than that. And the reporters want to know, who helped you get here? Who were the people that were... Uh, instrumental in helping you get to this particular point you're at right now when you're celebrating the highest achievement possible? Who made sacrifices along the way that enabled you to be in this position right now? Who were the people along the way while you were in Timbits or, or, or Pee Wee or even in junior hockey that were on your side, the people that advocated for you in order for you to get to this level? And the players inevitably mention their parents uh, who sacrificed and, and got up early and, uh, and drove them all over the place. Or they mention certain coaches who saw something in them and, and taught them and, and, and developed them and maybe even campaigned for them in order for them to get to the next level. But that's an interesting question, isn't it? Who helped you get to where you are now? Whether it's in achieving a milestone of some kind or or receiving an award for scholastic ability, it's grad time, or or even in your profession, or maybe even in in getting married or becoming a parent. Who was influential for you along the way? Because you see, whatever we achieve, whatever we accomplish, whenever we get a promotion, we, we usually need other people to help us out or to put in a good word for us. And it usually has to be someone with some degree of influence or authority. That person has to have some kind of qualifications that would make that good word trustworthy. 
Well, I'm saying all that just to give us a point of contact with Hebrews chapter 8. We've been working our way uh, through a, a, a section of this letter lately that deals with Jesus as a priest. And one of the functions of a priest is to be a middleman between the people and God, and in this case, to kind of advocate on behalf of man and woman to God so that God would find humans acceptable to be able to stand before him. And God, in his wisdom, designed a whole system for his, his covenant people, for Israel, to make that happen. It involved priests offering sacrifices to God on behalf of sinners, including the priest himself. But back in chapter 7 of Hebrews, it said that that system, even though it was created by God, was never intended to make people ultimately acceptable and ultimately perfect. That was never the intent, and, and it couldn't ultimately accomplish that. The system was temporary, and it was a pointer. It was intended to point people to the need for a perfect ultimate sacrifice, a once and for all sacrifice, and that came, as we know, in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the great news of the gospel, isn't it? Jesus becoming a sacrifice in the place of sinners. Theologians like to call that a penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus taking upon himself the penalty that should rightly be handed to sinners. But in order for Jesus to be our advocate and priest, he also had to have qualifications in order to fill that particular role. But Jesus didn't meet the normal Jewish qualifications because he didn't come from the tribe of Levi like the rest of them did. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, and that was the point back in chapter 7. He was a totally different kind of priest, and he needed to be because his sacrifice was completely different. And the important point of chapter 8, it was not only different, but it was better. It was of a better quality. Jesus' death and resurrection would deal with sins not only that had to be repeated, it says in chapter 7, daily, but would deal with them completely and forever. And so that's Hebrews 7. But in Hebrews 8, we'll see that not only was the nature of the priesthood better, so was the location of the priesthood. His worksite, so to speak. And because Jesus' worksite was way more, we could say, lavish, when Jesus advocates for you, it has way more value than if anyone else on this earth advocates for you. And that's kind of the comparison in this section. It's all about how Jesus' present place of ministry, his office, or his worksite, qualifies him as the best person to put in a good word for you. To God. And the entire second part of the chapter is that that's the case because it's based on better promises. And so let me read this chapter for us. You can follow along as I read. Hebrews chapter 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places. In the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, if his 
office, his place of ministry, were on earth, he would not be a priest of all, since there are priests who offer according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you in the mountain, on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they didn't continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Just thought of those words when we sang the family of God. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Praise God. I think some of the words were, I belong to the family. Verse 11, And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And so in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. We could basically divide this chapter into two main sections. The first is from verses 1 to 5, and that's that Jesus' priest work is out of this world. Jesus' work as a priest is out of this world. It's of a different kind. It's, It's not bound to this earth. And that very fact means that it's of a higher quality, of a higher value, and of a higher benefit for its beneficiaries. You can see that right away there in verse 1. Now the point in what we're saying is this. For a pastor, that's a great thing because we're always trying to figure out the point of a passage. And now it tells us right out. Uh, We didn't have to figure that out this week. Here's the point. We have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. He's not ministering from here on earth like the other priests were. And so here you can see that the location of Jesus' work was important to this author. It's just another thing that separates and distinguishes Jesus' work as a priest from what these people that he's writing to, people who were professing believers coming out of a Hebrew background, it it, distinguishes that work from what Jesus is doing now. Location, location, location. We hear that from real estate agents, right? That's the important thing. Jesus is doing his work from heaven. Heaven is his home office. He is seated there right now at the right hand of God's throne. In verse 2, he is a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. Holy places, true tent... There's another way of talking about heaven. But you see that he's making a contrast there, right? This is a place, an office that the Lord set up, not man. 
this week, just on Friday, after we hear, heard of uh, Andrew and Shelley deciding to come here, Shara and myself already started talking a little bit about setting up an office for Andrew for when he comes in October. We started talking about a desk and a you know, computer and, and shelves and, and some of the things that we'd have to start, sort of start putting together. But here in this section, you have God pictured as setting up a place of work for his son. And that gives it an infinite higher value than what any sort of earthly system had going for it. And so he says that the place where Jesus is working has been set up by the Lord, not by man. He's comparing the place where Jesus works to the place where the Jewish priests did their work. And so you've got some kind of a tent or a tabernacle. And if you remember, that's the place that symbolized where God was during the time when Israel was in the wilderness. And really, right up until the time uh, where King Solomon had the temple built. But even by its very nature, even a, a tent is something that's temporary, right? We know that when you go camping, you might set up a tent, but that's not your real house. Some of these refugee camps that you see in the news these days, they, uh, people get displaced from their real homes and they, and they live in tents. You can call them sometimes tent people or, tent, or these camps with, with tents in them. They're only meant to be temporary. Sometimes they've become almost permanent, but that wasn't their tent. They're, they're displaced for a while until they get back to their real home or to another home. 2 Corinthians 5 talks about our bodies as tents, sort of our, our, our temporary places of residence. These bodies are, are only fitted for earth until we get our real bodies that are fitted for heaven, for eternity. Last Sunday afternoon, last Sunday was Camp Sunday, you remember, and we had to be here, so we didn't get out there until the afternoon, but the boys, four, my four boys and I went out there, and uh, we got there at, at 2 o'clock, and there was not one person at the camp. <laughs> we couldn't believe it, how fast, it looked like nobody was there all day, and we heard there was a lot of people. But anyways, we sort of hung out and played, out, played around there for a little while, the boys were playing in the sand and stuff like that. But on the way home, we decided to go to the old property on the way home. And really, the only left, building left standing on that property is what was called Big Tab, short for the Big Tabernacle. Now, there were lots of good memories in that Big Tab, especially for our oldest son, who had gone to camp at the old property. And AJ, our six-year-old, as we were there, kept saying, I want to go in and see it. Dad, can we go in and see it? And we were in the car at that point. I just kept on saying, no, 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 you don't want to go in there. You know, that place is old. It's, it, it's full of spider webs, and there's probably lots of bees in there. You, know, you don't want to go in there. But that's kind of the comparison here as well. The big tab, the old tabernacle, that old tent is no good anymore. It's had its day. And it was good in its day. Jesus is a minister in the true tent. Verse 3 then talks about how um, because Jesus is a high priest, he had to offer something too, and we'll find out that he's going to offer himself but here the author is still thinking about the present location of his ministry. And so verse 4 says, Now if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. And when he's writing this, and probably in about A.D. 60, priests were still ministering in the temple. Now it was going to be destroyed about 10 years later, and the whole uh, Jewish system of sacrifices hasn't been reenacted since then. 
It's done away with. It's over. But verse 4 says, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. And then verse 5, they serve a copy or shadow of the heavenly things. Copies and shadows. Those aren't the real thing, right? They're only reflections of the real thing. And that's what this is saying. That tent, that, that sanctuary back in the day was only a reflection of what's now reality in heaven. It was put together by Moses under very specific instructions from God, but its purposes were restricted to a, a certain time in God's big picture plan of salvation. And now that time is over. The old tent, the big tab, the sanctuary, where the priests did their work has passed its uh, best before date. It was important in its day for bringing people to God, but now the real thing is in operation, and it is way more effective. And it's out of this world. It's not here. We can't touch it now. It's, it's something that's going on in heaven. And the priests that work there, they're not needed anymore either. They were just copies and shadows because they pointed to Jesus too, whose work site is right there at the right hand of the Father. But the fact that Jesus is a priest right now, working from heaven, really has some amazing implications for you and me sitting here today. Everything that happened there in Israel was mostly directed to a particular group of people, namely Israel. They were God's chosen people and were, listen, they were marked off by birth and by certain signs. They were members of God's household by virtue of their birth, not necessarily by virtue of their faith, although there were some that did believe in the future promises of a coming Messiah. But membership in the community was more of a national thing, a political thing. It wasn't a spiritual reality. But the fact that Jesus is now the better high priest has changed everything. And now God has made it possible for all of us to have the opportunity to be part of God's family be part of God's community. And that's what the rest of Hebrews 8 is all about. And so the second point of the passage is, it's only two today, a better place means better promises. And that's from verse 6 to the end of the chapter. A better place means better promises. Verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent, piling on the superlatives here, than the old. As the old covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Did you get that? Much more excellent, better. It's better. Can't miss the point there. When Jesus came, and then he died and was raised and went back to heaven, everything changed, and for the better. And it's better because God, in his kindness, makes a new covenant with his people. And he uses words from the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. This is all from Jeremiah verse 31, verses 8 to 12, to show us what these promises entail, what these better promises entail. The first one, the one he made with Moses, had its issues. And the issues were not with the one who made the covenant. They were not with God. Not even to some extent with the covenant itself, but with the people. Verse 7, he, that is God, finds fault with it, not with it, with the covenant, but with them. They were faulty. In other words, Israel, God's 
chosen people did not keep their terms of the covenant. Verse 9 says, they did not continue in my covenant. So look at how it describes what God did for them. God says, I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. God acted in a mighty and very personal way to deliver Israel from Egypt. He was right there with them. He sent plagues. He he parted the Red Sea. Yet they were marked by ungratefulness, by constant disobedience, and really by a shocking lack of faith. And, And that just kept on going right from the wilderness to the time of the judges, to the time of the kings, to the time when they were finally exiled, and even after that. But by the time we get to Jeremiah 31 in the Old Testament, where these verses in Hebrews 8 are quoted from, God had allowed Israel to be taken out of the land of, remember what it's called? The land of promise. The promised land. They had forfeited the promises. They had abandoned God for idols and for other nations. And so now, very sadly, God abandons them, at least in a national and geographical way. He actually says, do you notice, I showed no concern from them. It's quite something coming from God, isn't it? And for a time, there's no tabernacle, no temple, no place of worship. It all gets wiped out. That place that symbolizes the presence of God, that holy of holies where you would go into to go into God's presence was gone. That's the context of verses 8 to 12. And those words originally came from the pen of of Jeremiah right during that time when they had been taken out of the land. But look at what God says through Jeremiah. The exile is not the last word. Already back then, Jeremiah was told by God that there would be a new covenant, a new day. God would not finally abandon his people. Only what's coming is not so much a national renewal, even though I do think that is going to come at the end of the age, but here it's a spiritual inward renewal. He says back to verse 8, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers. See right there, it's a different kind of promise, a different kind of covenant than the first one, a better covenant with better promises. The promised land was gone, but better promises are coming. And the author of Hebrews says that those days are right now. He sees himself as living in the days of the new covenant. He's telling these Hebrews that they're living under those terms right now because they live on this side of the cross and on this side of the resurrection, just like we do today. What are those better promises of verse 6? Well, there's three of them. One in each verse, starting at verse 10. One in verse 10, one in verse 11, and one in verse 12. And they, trust me, really are better. One way they're better is that they're just not for national Israel. They're for true Israel. Do you know that if you're a believer, you can, one of the things that we can be categorized that is as true Israel? And that includes those of us who are Christians, God's chosen people, not by blood now, but by faith. And let's remember, these come right from the hand of God. That's very evident in this new covenant, isn't it? 
I will make. Five times you see that in verses 10 to 12. I will, I will, I will. This is God talking. This is God's sovereign action toward his people. He certainly didn't do this based on any merit of the people. We know that. They didn't continue in the covenant. They were continually unfaithful in their relationship with God, and so are we. So for God to act toward us in this way is purely an act of God's grace. God's sovereign grace. So what does he do? What are these better promises? Quickly, verse 11. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. What is it that's better about that promises? Well, well, where did God put the laws in the time of Moses? He, he wrote it onto two big stones, right? That was pretty impressive. It says that they came from the, from the finger of God. God graciously gave Israel his very own words. But they were an external thing. They were written on stone. But now God goes way further. He has put his laws into our minds, and he's written them where? Onto our hearts. What was outward and external in the Old Covenant is now internal. What was written in stone for a whole nation is written now on the hearts of every believer. This is how what we call regeneration happens in our hearts, where God washes us through, us, through his spirit and, and he gives us a brand new heart. Ezekiel 36 also talks about the new covenant that God makes with his people. And he says there, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. It's like a heart transplant. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And not only that, I will put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes. Listen to this. I will cause you to walk in my statutes, my laws, and be careful to obey my rules. God brings about a transformation on the inside where he changes our hearts and then he actually gives us, he implants within us an ability to obey his rules. God's will is written on your mind and on your heart. God's will, what God wants for you is written on your mind and on your heart. It's kind of got the sound of something that's way more personal, doesn't it, than the old system? And that's what all this is leading up to. And you see that there in those beautiful words that we talked about. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Those are, those are covenant words. You see them in the Old Testament, actually, every time God renews his covenant with his people. But they carry a different meaning now. That's the relationship God has with his church. We are part of this new covenant community under God himself. And we become members of that community through this fellowship that we have through faith in the saving work of Jesus. That's the thing that unites us. And we stay part of that community through an enduring and a a persevering faith in Christ. These words actually give us an incentive to stay faithful, don't they? Whenever you're tempted to, to give up, or if you feel like your faith is teetering a little bit, those very words, come back to them, because they should act like uh, extra strength glue to, to help you to hold fast to Christ. I will be their God. That's, that's God's promise to you. But you really start to see the personal relationship with God in, those last, in the last part of verse 11. 
Here's the second better promise. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest. There's a lot we could say about those verses, but let me just say one thing. Um, Remember here, he's comparing the Old and New Covenants. In the Old Covenant, people would rely on prophets and on priests that would teach God's will. And so if you were alive back then and you wanted to know what God wanted, you were dependent on a priest or a prophet. King Saul, uh, King David even, they they would call for a prophet or a priest when they wanted to know uh, from God whether they should fight a certain battle or not. And they would ask of them or, or inquire of God, and then the prophet would relay God's plan for that particular battle. But this is saying, under the new covenant, there's now a direct path to God. We don't have to go through someone anymore. They shall all know me. Don't need a teacher. We will all have personal knowledge of God. And so we live in a time when we can have a direct, personal, intimate relationship and knowledge of God. We can go to him in prayer anytime. Prayers of thanksgiving. Prayers asking for God's will. Or for God's help. And prayers of confession. Prayers for forgiveness. We have direct access to God. And we have that direct access because Jesus is our high priest. The one who advocates for us. And he is seated right now at the right hand of God doing his ministry. And I won't take any time on this, but notice there that this applies to every New Covenant member. They will all know me. If someone does not know God personally, they're not a member in the New Covenant. I think in Sunday school they were talking about the effective call today. That's, that's what this is. All that are part of the New Covenant are his. There might be people that are in part of our community that aren't New Covenant members, and they probably will eventually fall away. But no one that's part of the true New Covenant community will ever fall away from Christ. That's what this is saying. So, two better promises. One, the will of God is written on our hearts. Two, we can know that God, we can know God personally and directly. And both of those promises are true for us today. But there's a third promise. What's the basis on which we can know God? Verse 12. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. So this really gets to the heart of the issue for all of us, doesn't it? For all humankind. Iniquities. Sin. This is the problem when it comes to the relationship, the personal relationship that we ask people to come into between God and us. Our hearts are, what does Jeremiah 17 say? They're deceitful. They're desperately wicked. That that heart transplant that Ezekiel is talking about, that had to happen. Because naturally, we would go to wherever, to wickedness. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Psalm 130 says, If the Lord should mark our iniquities, who could stand? And so when when we read something like, I will be merciful to their iniquities... I will remember their sins no more. It should make us want to pay attention. Because this is good news. And it seems like it's just straight up, unqualified, a promise that's, that's written into the terms of a covenant. So when it comes down to it, we're, we're dependent on mercy. 
Mercy is our only hope, really, on dealing with sin, isn't it? So how could that come about? Well, it has to be by God's initiative. God's justice required him to deal with sin. He couldn't just overlook it. So what does he do? By his own initiative, by his own plan, according to his own purpose and his mercy, he sends someone to absorb the penalty of our iniquities, of sin. This is the good news of the gospel, friends. When when we turn away from our sins and when we bank all of our hopes for a relationship with God on what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross, then God will have mercy. He won't give us what we deserve. That's what mercy is. God not giving us what we rightly deserve. Because Jesus has already taken the penalty that we deserve. That's why. That's God's divine mercy, and that's our only hope. And the effect is that God then actually remembers our sins no more. Why? Because he keeps looking at the once and for all sacrifice of the Son on our behalf. That's what he remembers. So we must keep repenting of our sins and trusting in Christ. Jesus has a much more excellent ministry. He is in heaven mediating mediating a better covenant and acted on better promises. And so if you are a Christian, and, and maybe let's just go back to the beginning. Let's just say that you've now reached the pinnacle of everything. You, you've made it to heaven, the highest achievement possible. Now imagine some reporter would come to you and ask, who would you like to thank you for getting to this place? Who would you like to thank? Who was instrumental? For all of us, there would only be one answer, right? It is undoubtedly and exclusively Jesus. Only Jesus. Christ alone. The one who actually achieved it all for us by his work on the cross and through his resurrection and in his ascension, where he's now interceding on our behalf as our high priest. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. Lord, this middle section of Hebrews is deep, sometimes a little more hard to understand. But Lord, we ask that you would that you would work it and that you would press it into our hearts by your Spirit. Lord, we thank you again for your great salvation and for the great Savior that you sent. We are great sinners, but thanks be to you, you have provided for us a great Savior and a precious salvation. Thank you, Father, for your mercy toward us, for not treating us as we deserve. Thank you for awakening our faith and for writing your laws into our hearts so that we might obey you. And even in that, Lord, we know that we still fail. Help us to be quick to ask you for forgiveness. Help us now to endure in our faith. And thank you that you've made even that possible through Jesus, the one who is not only the author of our faith, but also the perfecter 
and the completer of our faith. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.